Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. The scripture for today's sermon comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. This is the word of God to us. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of God to us. Amen. Thanks, Corey. Guys, Merry Christmas. It's, uh, it's so fun to see you guys here today. Thank you so much for celebrating the birth of Jesus with us. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, on behalf of all of our members and our pastors and our deacons, I especially want to welcome those of you guys that are guests today. Thanks for taking time to be here. It means a lot. And uh, I'm actually really confident and I'm increasingly confident throughout the day that uh, however you came in here today, that the living God has gifts to give today. Some of you guys skipped in here high on Christmas and you are captured by the glory of the incarnation and time with family and your heart's full of joy and the Lord wants to meet you there. Others in the room crawled in here and you might even feel like you're just trying to get through it and I'm confident that God has unbelievable stores of mercy that he wants to offer you and his son Jesus. So I wanna pray for you. You guys pray for me and if you got a Bible, you can flip over to Luke chapter one. Father, I thank you for these men and women that you love. I thank you that in Jesus, your face is towards them. I thank you that your countenance is the countenance of a good father. I thank you that because of the finished work of Jesus, your posture towards these men and women that are willing to simply call in the name of Jesus is not one of disappointment or anger or wrath. It's one of delight. And we thank you for the words of Mary. We thank you for the wonder that she got to encounter with her son, Jesus. And we pray that we would share in that today. God, we pray that you would give us new songs, not just lip service, not just liturgies we say with our mouths, but would you actually rewrite the liturgies of our heart to join Mary in magnifying the living God from the depths of our soul. We love you, we trust you, help us. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. Hey, so my relationship with Christmas music is really complicated because Christmas music, want, it runs the widest spectrum from music that makes me want to punch myself in the face to music that's incredible. Um, throughout the course of the Christmas season, we're assaulted by songs that were written by terrible people. We have to hear chipmunks singing about Christmas. Uh, there's even a Christmas song that's on heavy rotation about a dude picking up a lady, buying a six pack at the liquor store and sharing it in their car on Christmas. It's the most depressing song in the history of the world. That song smells like stale Marlboro Reds. And yet 
On the other end of the spectrum, the greatest music that's ever come out from the history of the church is Christmas music. It's music that's so deep and impregnated with the glory of God and the weight of salvation and the scope of what God came to do. And what happens in many seasons in the life of the church, we sing songs about the forgiveness of sin and that's right and that's good and that's true. But in Christmas, we start to open our eyes to just how huge the scope of redemption is. That God is not just, he's not just reconciling sinners to himself through his son, Jesus, but the end game of Jesus's life, death and resurrection is nothing short of the renewal of all things, all things. And so today, today I wanna take you to literally the greatest Christmas song of all time. And I believe it's the greatest Christmas song of all time, not just because of the content, but the content is amazing. This is a song written by an uneducated peasant girl who stands as a testimony to all of us about what happens when people's imaginations are soaked in the stories of God's redemption. This is a young girl that had heard all over her life throughout the time she was a little kid about God's saving work for Israel the promises that he made, the ways that he came through. This is a girl whose imagination and soul had eaten the word of God to such a degree when she breaks out in song, she can't help but reflect the psalmist and various theologians throughout the Old Testament that proclaim the goodness of God. That's amazing enough, but the context of this song is incredible. This is a woman that's carrying in her womb the great mystery of the Christian faith. This is a woman whose life is being upended with the glory and splendor of God. This is a woman who is practicing at a profound biological level hospitality that points to the very nature of the triune God. And what happens as Mary sings this song is she breaks out in praise that's not just words that she's memorized, but this is the spirit of God from the depths of her being opening up wells of praise to proclaim how amazing God is, what he's done and what he's doing. And as we look at this song today, what I want for you and for me is to be aware of the fact that Mary's song invites the people of God throughout all the ages to have songs that aren't controlled by the circumstances of our life. Songs that you can sing that are soul songs that come out of the depths of your being where we learn to worship God in spirit and truth, not dependent on circumstances being good, but songs that you can sing in the dungeon, songs that you can sing in the prison cell, songs that you can sing when the bad diagnosis comes. These are songs that are not dependent on things being easy. These are songs that proclaim what God has done in Jesus. So I want to start with what Mary says in verse 46. Mary's song has been called for many years, the Magnificat of Mary. That comes from the Latin translation where she proclaims that her soul magnifies the Lord. Look at what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. One of my favorite authors years ago talked about two very different instruments used to magnify There's the instrument that's used to take the tiny and make it visible, that's the microscope, where that which is too small for us to put our eyes on is brought near and it seems larger and bigger than what it is. But there's a different kind of instrument, there's also the telescope. And what the telescope does is it takes the enormous, the huge, the glorious, and the distant, and it makes it accessible where we can see it. 
And what Mary is saying with the help of the Holy Spirit is that in the incarnation of Jesus, the splendor of God, the glory of God, the weight of God, and the otherness of God is coming near to us and putting on flesh. The word of God has come to dwell among us. And what Mary's going to sing throughout this song is an invitation for us to actually look through the telescope of the incarnation at just who God is the posture of God and the work of God and the heart of God. And as Mary looks at the incarnation, this mystery growing in her womb, there's three things that she sees. I want to give them to you quickly. Number one, the first thing that Mary sings about is that God keeps his promise. The incarnation means that God keeps his word. Look at verse 54 and 55. She sings, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now, pause here for just a second, and let me give you just a little bit of historical context. What's amazing about her proclaiming God remembering his mercy is that Mary has lived through the tail end of a 400-year gap in having the prophets minister the word of God to Israel. At the closing of the Old Testament canon, a season of loud silence enters in where it's almost radio silence, where all of a sudden the people of God that have the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the people of God are left in this long drought where they're wondering, does God remember us? Is God going to keep his word? Is God going to come through? Is he trustworthy? Can we have confidence in him? Because in this moment in the life of Israel, what they knew intimately was despair and sin and oppression and pain. But Mary is saying that God has kept his word and he has remembered. And then in verse 55, she does something amazing. She summarizes the entirety of the Old Testament and she reminds us that the entirety of the Old Testament points to this moment. It's all about Jesus. Look at it again. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Okay, this is incredible. If you go back and look at the dealings of God with his people since the very beginning, in the midst of our brokenness and sin, in the midst of a world that's been marked with the curse, where death is entered in and all kinds of disasters overtake us at every turn, since the very beginning in our rebellion, God's been making promises, And it's true in one sense that their promise is plural, but there's another deeper sense where there's one promise that God's been making since the very beginning. When Adam and Eve decided that they could do a better better job being their own gods than the God that created them and loved them, God in that disaster spoke a word that one day in the fullness of time, there would be a seed of woman and the seed of woman would confront evil, sin, death, he would crush the head of the serpent. Time goes on and we're introduced to a guy named Abraham, who in some ways is the father of faith in the old covenant. He's the one who was a pagan guy, probably worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars and the gods of his ancestors. And God interrupts this guy's life and he makes him a promise that one day in the fullness of time, he would have an offspring and his offspring would literally bring the blessing of God to all the nations. He would bring the peace of God, the presence of God, the goodness of God to the ends of the earth. 
Then we get another guy who's introduced to us as King David, a man described as a man after God's own heart, but he's a very flawed man. He's a king whose kingdom is marked with sin and brokenness and disaster. But God makes him a promise that one day David would have an offspring or a seed and David would be a greater king. David's son would be a greater king than David and his kingdom would never end. It would fill all things with the beauty and justice of God. And for the last three weeks, we've been observing the Advent season, which is this season of cultivating longing and waiting for God to remember his mercy in Jesus, to keep his promise to us. We walk through the book of Isaiah and some of the messianic prophecies in that book. We saw how God said in the fullness of time, there would be a child who would step into the deep darkness of humanity. And as he stepped into the deep darkness of humanity, God promised that of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. We saw how God promised one day to bring an anointed one, full of the spirit of God, who would be the seed of David, who would be lifted up. And as he's lifted up, he would draw people from the four corners of the earth to him. And we saw that he would also bring in the fullness of time a new creation. He wouldn't just reconcile individual sinners, but the totality of God's covenant people will be restored and creation itself will be set free from this seed, from corruption and death. The curse will be done. And then last week, we walked through Isaiah chapter 42, which gives me so much hope. God prophesied that the servant of the Lord would be born and he would not be, he would not be another dictator or a bully king or a taker or a pharisaical religious leader. He will be the kind of servant shepherd who won't break bruised reeds, who won't extinguish dimly burning wicks, like, what good news is that? That people whose faith feels like it's hanging on by life support, people who feel like they're getting owned by the same sins again and again, that in the fullness of time, there's gonna be a king who's gonna move towards them and the posture of his heart is gonna be to help and to heal, to rescue and to deliver. And so Mary in this moment, friends, Mary's pregnant and Mary's pregnant with that seed, the promise that God made to Adam and Eve, the promise that God made to Abraham, the promise that God made to David, the promise that he made to the prophets. Mary's pregnant, but here's what's wild. Here's what blows my mind. Time itself is pregnant. God said in Galatians chapter four, verse four, that when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time, that's the, that's the picture. That's like pregnant. The cosmos and time and space itself is ready. The moment's here. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So here's what I want to say. As Mary reflects on God keeping his promises, we're reminded yet again of the story of the entire Bible, and that's that God tells long stories. God tells long stories. God's faithful to keep his word. God is orchestrating all of history to his desired end. And here's what's wild. That's true with the capital S story of all things. God's at work. He's not out of control. The cosmos isn't out of control. God's in charge and he's working and moving. But let me give you really good news. If you feel beat up, beat down, disillusioned, like your dreams have fallen apart, here's what you need to know. 
God tells really long stories on an intimate individual level too. And here's what I know, man. Here's what I know. I know that if you've got breath in your lungs today, if you're vertical today, then the living God is not finished with you. He's still speaking. He's still working. He's still moving towards you. The incarnation is the great reminder that God keeps his word. He keeps his word. Number two, in addition to that, Mary sings because in the incarnation, she sees that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 47. Mary sings, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those that fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and he's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and, he's, and the rich he has sent away empty. Okay, it's hard to make sense of the incarnation if you don't realize that pride was the immediate backdrop of this story and pride is the backdrop of the story of all humanity. In this particular story, if you read on and study the rest of the narrative, what you're going to see is that the kind of pride that wants to push against the coming of the king is not just sort of a benign, no big deal vice. The kind of pride that's at work when Jesus is born in human history is the kind of pride that causes a wicked king named Herod to think that he's so entitled to his position and to so buy into a God identity that he's justified in murdering countless babies to protect his throne. It's the kind of pride that we read about in Revelation chapter 12, where John has this vision of Satan as a great red dragon who's adorned himself with pride and arrogance with diadems, and he's ranting and he's raving against the living God, and he's pledging that when the child is born, he's going to devour it. And friends, listen, pride is the story of all of us. It's the story of all of us. It's your story. It's my story. It's the idea that we can do a better job being our own gods, our own kings, our own queens than the one that created us and the one that loves us. C.S. Lewis, as usual, sums it up really well. He wrote, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of these are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And what's wild about the incarnation is that the way that God breaks in with his kingdom, the way he intervenes in human history is not a shock and awe campaign where God simply unveils his glory and melts all evil. If God would have simply flexed on all evil without the incarnation, here's the problem. You and me are culpable in that evil. Nobody's left standing on the day of judgment if God decides to speak the word and the devil and his kingdom fall in that moment. Guess what? We're enmeshed in all that. So God does something wild. 
in the stillness of the night, in a place that nobody would have chosen, through people that God actually lifts up in their humility, God sneaks in to bring about a shocking reversal. In the fall, human beings substituted ourselves for God, and through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has chosen to substitute himself for man. And I want you to think about what God's telling us with the crazy cast that he pulls together in this moment. We have Mary, who's a poor teenage peasant girl who probably couldn't read. She's probably 15 years old. She couldn't testify in court. She's a part of a tiny nation that's under the rule of Rome. And God uses Mary, a humble nobody who no one would have noticed in that society to bring about his work of redemption. We have Joseph, who God chooses to be the step, stepdad of his only begotten son. Uh, that's an amazing thing that just sort of fascinates me every time I read it. I want to know more about Joseph. And what we find as we read the story of Joseph, even though he was sensitive to the Holy Spirit and God spoke to him through dreams, what we find about Joseph is that Joseph is just a simple guy. He's a blue-collar dude that swings a hammer for a living. He doesn't perform any miracles. He doesn't do anything fancy. He just simply trusts God and decides that he's going to honor his wife and take care of his family and do what needs to be done. And then we have shepherds. And we, we totally misunderstand the shepherds because we're so wired around our cute nativities to think that shepherds were clean, really nice guys. But shepherds in the first century were ceremonially unclean. They were part of the class of people that the Pharisees would have called sinners. These are guys that wouldn't be comfortable in a Sunday school. These are outside dogs, if you will. Right? I, and I think of shepherds, I often think of my buddies who work in the oil patch, who can sort of weave Shakespearean tapestries with profanity. They can make any swear word, a noun, a verb, an adjective, it's, it's incredible. Shepherds were rough men who were more comfortable outside, who probably didn't smell very good, and God reveals his glory to them, and he invites them to be some of the first eyewitnesses of the birth of Jesus. And then we have the wise men. The wise men are baffling to me. These guys are so weird. They just come out of left field. Maybe they might have been of Arab background or Babylonian, but somehow they had been influenced by the workings of God and the promises that God made to Israel. And they're waiting for the hope of a Messiah. And God speaks to them through like stars and planets. And they feel kind of mystical and Eastern and a little bit creepy. But God interrupts their lives and he pulls them into his story. They're the ultimate religious outsiders. They're not Jewish. They didn't go to temple. And in the midst of all of the supporting characters, what I want you to see is that the center of all of it is Jesus, whose humility is hard for us to understand. It's been said that the incarnation is the central and greatest mystery of the Christian faith, and I believe it. Philippians chapter two tells us that though he was in the form of God, the son of God, second person of the Trinity, equal with the father, equal with the spirit, the uncreated creator, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The story of the incarnation is that Jesus was born in humility that should blow our minds. The one that created Mary was sustained in her womb. The word that spoke creation into existence was sustained by his mother's breast. 
the one who has unending glory, majesty, and might, stepped into human history, not on a war horse, but he stepped into human history through a birth canal with blood and water and cries of pain. And he wasn't born in a palace and he wasn't born in an important town. Like Bethlehem is a nowhere backwater. It's not Rome, it's not New York, it's not LA, it's not London. It's a place of zero geopolitical importance. And he wasn't even born in a time where he could be in a hospital. There was no room for Mary at the inn and Jesus was born in a barn surrounded by animal manure and stink. And then the life of Jesus is so wild. His life is so beautiful and so compelling and so against the grain of our human pride. Jesus became a refugee with his family, fleeing violence. As a child, he learned, he submitted to sinful parents and grew. He dealt with all the pain and temptations and trials of being a teenager. That blows my mind. Don't ever tell a teenager that those are the best years of their life. That just makes you a liar and a terrible person. Being a teenager is awful. I tell teenagers, you will get through it. But Jesus went through all of that, all of the hormones and all of the angst and difficulty. And the Bible tells us, this is so wild. The Bible tells us that he was tempted in all the ways that you and I have been tempted, but he did not sin. He humbly submitted to the will of his father. He befriended sinners. He washed the feet of his dirty disciples. He was rejected by family, by friends, by his nation. And ultimately, what you have to understand is that it does you no good to try to hold on to the Christmas Jesus while rejecting the Good Friday Jesus because Jesus was born to die. And he died in humility. See, sentimentality has no power. Cuteness can't save us. And Jesus is an example. If he just came to be another good example of morality and humility, like, guess what? That's just another nail in the coffin of our judgment. If he was just an example, you and me are host. Another sign pointing out the ways that we fall short. But no, no, no. Jesus came to be born, to share in our humanity so that he could die in our place for our sins and be raised for our forgiveness. St. Augustine put it like this, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, The teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak and that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. The incarnation is God moving towards human sinfulness and brokenness and evil and death. And instead of saying in the saved, gated community of heaven, being enmeshed with all of it, to rescue and redeem us. I know this is not just true of me, but I've seen so many horrible things, so many terrible things. In our country and other countries, I've seen so much evil. There's no way I would believe in the God of the Bible if it wasn't for the incarnation. 
People spill so much ink on the problem of evil. The Bible's answer to the problem of evil is not abstract philosophical pondering. It's a son. Why? Well, this leads to the last thing. Mary sees in the incarnation that all of this is because Jesus is bringing the blessing of God. Look what happens in verses 48 and 49. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now, it's certainly true that Mary should be respected, that we should thank God for Mary, that Mary should be honored, but never worshiped and never prayed to. But the thing that blows my mind about Mary's experience with Jesus is that Jesus is going to tell us in Luke chapter 11 that it's not just Mary that experienced blessing because of her relationship with Jesus, but Christ is going to tell us that anyone who hears the word of God, which is the good news of Jesus, and receives it will be counted blessed. Now, can we pause here for just a second? Because I'm I'm totally aware of the fact that the word blessing and the word cursing are completely impotent in our culture. They mean nothing. Um, When I hear the word blessing, I think of really bad Christian chain emails that I get. Like, it's this Thomas Kincaidian, precious moments, Mardell merchandise, weird, gross, sentimental glob. And when we hear the word cursing, we think, well, okay, cursing is what happens when you hit your thumb with a hammer and you say a bad word. But here's what the Bible actually says. The idea of blessing and the idea of cursing are both incredibly rich with weight and with meaning. Cursing is about death. It's about being bent away from your telos or your purpose, what you were created for. Cursing is about being twisted away from God and away from who you were made to be. To be cursed is to be under the wrath of God, is to be separated from life itself. And when the Bible talks about blessing, it's not cutesy, it's not sentimental, it's not a platitude. When the Bible talks about blessing, it's about God's favor, his heart, his intentions. To be blessed is to be restored to relationship with the living God who is life, who you were created for. And what Jesus came to do that Mary gets, and I don't know how fully she understood it at this point, but what Mary is speaking through the help of the Holy Spirit is that she's been blessed through the presence of Jesus. And that blessing, that blessing is going to be proclaimed generationally. But here's what's amazing. Anyone and everyone who calls on the name of Jesus is also blessed to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven. And here's what's wild. The blessing that Jesus came to bring is not just the individual blessing of forgiveness, although, hey, that would be enough. That would be enough to blow our minds for all eternity. But we sang it in the song, Joy to the World today. It's not just the blessing that God wants to bring through Jesus, that our sins can be forgiven and we can be reconciled to to the Father. It's the blessing that he came to make flow far as the curse is found. That all the injustice and evil and entropy of this world is on the clock. What Mary is singing to us is that what is bitter will be one day made sweet because of this child. What is twisted will be made straight. What is dark is going to be made light. What is evil will be overcome. 
Friends, the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus means that sin, Satan, and death will not get the last word because God's last word and his best word took on flesh and dwelt among us. Christmas is God's definitive answer to a broken humanity that's tried to make it without him that he's moving towards us. I want to pray for you. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. Um, Father, I'm just reminded of that worship song that we've sung before about the reckless love of God. And uh, I think that 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 line doesn't mean that you're like going off half-cocked, that your reckless love doesn't mean that you don't know the future, it doesn't mean that you're not sovereign, but it actually is a really powerful reminder of just how extravagant and costly to yourself your love is. That you didn't love us with just vibes. You didn't love us with sentimentality. You didn't love us with platitudes. You didn't love us from a distance. But your son came to take on flesh, to share in our life so that we might share in his life. And I pray, Lord, that the concrete nature of your love, that your love literally was born into human history and died on a Roman cross and was raised from the dead, I pray that that love would overcome our objections, our sins, our fears, our shame. I pray that you would help us to actually surrender and that you would give us the kind of song that Mary sang that would come from the very depths of our being. As we come to this meal, which in some ways is gonna be the best feast that we eat over this Christmas holiday, would you sustain us and nourish us till the great day?